I rise uh, uh, to solemnly inform the House in the presence of family and our military chiefs that the 100th Victoria Cross has been awarded to an Australian. Uh, this award is to the late Corporal Cameron Baird, already an iconic figure in our army who had earlier received the Medal of Gallantry. As the citation reads, his Victoria Cross is for most conspicuous acts of valour, extreme devotion to duty, and ultimate self-sacrifice at Gorchak village in Uruzgan province, Afghanistan, as a commando team leader. He was on his fifth special forces tour when he was killed in the action for which he was awarded the Victoria Cross. On the 22nd of June last year, in the first phase of the engagement, Corporal Baird and his team came under heavy fire on three separate occasions from well-prepared enemy positions. In the initial encounter, six enemy combatants were killed and weapons caches were captured. In subsequent encounters, Corporal Baird charged enemy positions and neutralised them with grenade and rifle fire. By drawing fire on himself repeatedly, he enabled other members of his team to regain the initiative. In the second phase of the engagement, Corporal Baird then led an assault on an enemy-held compound. On three separate occasions, under heavy fire, he forced the door of a building. Twice he was forced to withdraw, to reload and then to clear his rifle. For the third time, he entered the building, again drawing fire away from his comrades who were able to secure the objective. Tragically, he was killed in this final assault. Madam Speaker, words can hardly do justice to the chaos, confusion and courage that were evident that day. The comrade who was with him testifies. I have witnessed many acts of leadership and courage under enemy fire during my operational service. Corporal Baird's initiative, fearless tenacity and dedication to duty in the face of the enemy were exemplary and an absolute inspiration to the entire team. I was witness to the ultimate sacrifice. Madam Speaker, I salute Corporal Cameron Baird, VCMG. We all salute him and his almost equally remarkable comrades. In this place, we don't face danger. So we can hardly claim him as our brother, but we do acclaim him as our hero. We can hardly imagine what the likes of Corporal Baird and his comrades go through, but we stand in awe of their extraordinary courage, the extraordinary courage of these amazing men who serve our country and keep us safe.
Nick, what's up, bro? Hey, John. How you doing, man? Good. Um, all right, so we did we did a part one podcast. Um, it was well received. I had uh, you know folks uh, messaging me, you know, saying how interesting some of the stuff you were talking about was, like the stem cell uh, and all that. And these are folks who are former U.S. you know special operations guys and or or people who are sort of adjacent to that world um and you know i i think it's something you know worth talking about a little more uh last time when you were speaking about some of these things i had so many questions but i was just i, I was a little short on time so i i, I didn't want to sit there and extend the conversation for much longer um but it, it it's really a fascinating um area to look at and uh you know, you were like you graciously shared your your personal story, um, and and I know that's not easy uh, for for a lot of people to talk about how you know how things negatively affected them, and then sort of their journey through that. Uh, so I, you know, I appreciate you sharing that. Um, so you know, th- there's a ton to talk about, but uh, so you're let's talk about. Um, you know uh, Afghanistan a bit. Uh, you have a couple of deployments there. You know, all in uh, special forces. Uh, can yeah. you talk about just sort of what, um, sort of what your, your your guys like overall goal was like through your multiple deployments? Like, what were you guys uh, trying to achieve, and then like, what kind of like things were you guys doing there? So, um. I read a really great article the other day by, um, you know, a senior member from the unit, right, that, that released or is about to release. So I won't say his name because it came in the form of, of like, you know, uh, almost like a word doc. Um, and basically when the senior members met with like high ranking officials and politicians, they asked them like, you know, three primary questions of what was the major what was the objective? What was this? How do we measure it? And, you know, what's the exit sort of strategy here? And there was like, we don't know. So it makes it really fucking hard uh, from a command down to work under the premises of we don't know. <laughs> and, uh, but if you want to certainly make it very fucking difficulty for the, like the Roman empire didn't collapse as a result of the fucking Roman soldiers, Let's put it that way. The most honed Roman soldiers and knights in the world like in that era of soldiers in the world, like can you imagine how fucking diligent and competent and brilliant and fucking remarkable they would have been at warfare? Yeah. Like every fucking enemy on the planet in different terrains. So at the end of the day, the failure is for sure top down at a political level. And I guess that was the kind of, you know, the failing point of the whole system, right? Because, what we were tasked to do was basically target uh, enemy leadership and consistently target enemy leadership repetitively. And then basically essentially pass the bat into squadrons in a four months as we were pretty much bent and exhausted from doing it day and night around the clock when opportunity permits. Um, 
we would rotate out with another group and so on and just keep doing that. And the other um, high-level special operations in the country, I guess, were essentially doing the same thing. And that became known as targeting. And, uh, and there's obviously some shortfalls to that because, you know, there's only so many, like, like, I don't know, I don't know how you rebuild a country just by constantly like killing the leadership of the enemy and his cronies. Right. Um, that was essentially our objective. And well, I've got a pretty cool story that sort of paints a picture of that. Right. In uh, there's a battle that's from from the squadron I was in. Um, it was like the year before I got there. That's it's called Tzak, right? And they went in and they they got surrounded. There was a VC awarded. There was some medals and gallantry awarded, and uh, there was you know a charging of machine gun pits and stuff. Some some true like World War One shit, right? And they ended up finding like eighty one, you know, eighty one maybe eighty four, eighty something. Uh, Taliban bodies, right? Guys that they killed, and I think one of our guys got shot through the forearm, and that was our only, um, our only guy. And there was probably like max, maybe I think you know, twenty dudes in the thick of it, and some five-man teams far more in the thick of it than others, right? It was it, was, but it was pretty chaos, like because a lot of the Taliban still would have got away. It was where they decided to dig in and really fight a battle. There was one Taliban leader that really just wanted to, he, and and wherever he'd learnt from. It was proper education, by the way, from the um, whatever surrounding military had had taught them before they'd en- entered in the country, because they had interlocking arms with machine gun pits and everything. It was and dug in. It was it was pretty substantial resistance. Like they'd actually decided that you know what, fuck it, we're not just going to keep running. We're going to give it a nudge. Um, the guys wiped out. Obviously, in Tzak, pretty much, I guess, killed pretty much. At the end of the day, the the local population, the whole city was in on it. So all the men were were basically were basically defeated, as well as all their other fighters that were in town, right? And same with the the leadership, I guess, in the area, the main objective. And then, you know, we leave Tzak. The guys left Tzak. They kept going from place to place, and then doing missions like this around the clock. Right, not to this extent, right? Like 81 bodies is pretty substantial, and um, it you know it worked. It made the Taliban leaders like Taliban terrified to to fight, hold their ground and fight, um, and it also made Taliban leaders scared to take command because you got us turning up on their doorstep every other fucking day weekend. Um, when I came with the squadron like two years later, we decided to go back for another trip through Tzak, right? It's almost like as a round two mopping up mission. And you'd have thought that like maybe that just isn't a home base or they'd be like, maybe there's an, another strategy or something from the Taliban. But on that day when we went through there, um, Killed like another 10 guys, another 10 Talibans that put up a fight. Two of which, you know, as we we're talking about the daytime last time, two of which almost successfully ambushed with a belt fed machine gun. Some of our guys moving up through the green. Um, I can't, I, I talked 
some of the, the one of the senior leaders because I was up on the high ground with the machine gun myself. Um, that the, the building had not been cleared that I'd seen, but then again, I was uh, you know, and luckily went through there and were able to like flank these guys and, and kill them. And that day could have panned out very differently, right? Um, and it, they were just going to keep doing that. Right. Like, like we had no proper, like that was tactics. Right. And there's a fine ground between like kind of tactics and, and strategy to remove the team leaders. But if you're, if we're just, what, what, if our objective is to return to fucking town every two years to mop up again, and they're just going to replace more guys and have a new leader, like where the fuck, fuck is the strategic objective behind that because that there should be evidently um unsustainable right <laughs> like yeah it was it was clearly no objective um from top down no there's no what? way of measuring it and i yeah no i was just gonna say like i think um if you like if in order for like actual change to happen right it, it, i guess it would be like a combination of like you know these you know these guys have to get taken out right like and it's it's not to say that lightly like like they're pretty bad people like they're doing horrible shit to people uh and as you can see uh, you know anyone can see now with uh the pullout of, of afghanistan like sort of what the state of the country is now with the Taliban in charge, right? Um, but yeah, we're not dealing with nice people, right? Right. Like that, that could now be pretty black and white, self-evident. Yeah. And, um, like to, for, I guess for a lot of it to have to be successful overall, like it, it, the people of Afghanistan have to, uh, have to make the change and, uh, you know the the people the coalition that was you know supporting the the government at the time you know they have to be competent enough to to maintain their their country uh in that way where you know they can deal with you know armed insurgents and stuff like that for for years to come and like uh if if they're not prepared to do that then it then it becomes like a failing strategy and and i think you know, I've spoken to different guys who were um, responsible for training, uh, you know, Afghan partners like on the U.S. side, um, and and one of the things this person in particular was telling me, like, when reporting up the chain, like to you know, give a, a sort of status report on on the situation. Uh, for years, they would give like these positive reports, but on the ground, he's like. You know, the, these guys were not ready to fight, you know, the Taliban on their own, like without U.S. air support or, or you know, some coalition um, units supporting the, the, the infantry unit uh, of the the Afghan government. And um, and I think, like, you know, th there's just different countries where um, if you give certain kind of support to that government or whatever, like the, they're their soldiers are competent the, the the leadership is competent um and and you and you just kind of see like the like these guys can stand on their own potentially uh and and i guess 
you know, that's where it would be successful. Perhaps the issue in Afghanistan was that we just sort of stayed too long, you know, like the, we, t we went in early and, and toppled the Al-Qaeda and, 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 the Talib and the Taliban uh, kind of with that. But um, I think perhaps the, the, the real issue is we just sort of stayed too long. Like they should have just made the assessment, uh, you know, about, you know, what's capable, you know, what's possible here. And, and um, you know, I, 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 there's a bunch of theories on, on what could have been successful, like... Um, I interviewed a, um, a U.S. Special Forces major who was, uh, he was in charge of, like, all U.S. Special Forces uh, at the time that Bo Bergdahl um, went AWOL. Um, and, and he'd been there. He, there was some special program within the, the U.S. Green Berets where um, they would send, like, the same guys to the same areas in Afghanistan for years. So all of his <clears throat> combat experience was in like the same one or two regions in Afghanistan. He was in that program, and their theory was like to uh, have like a small footprint, uh, not have like you know a, a bunch of troops or like infantry, just sort of a small, quiet in a way, special operations footprint. And and they felt like there was some success with that, um, but like once uh, all these big sort of uh, infantry units started coming into there and, and um, that kind of changed the dynamic and, and not because the infantry guys were incompetent or anything but just because like you know what they're trained for is different from what they felt was successful you know with the special forces teams early on yeah yeah I, I so I I don't now I look at the the, the world on like a geopolitical and economic level and if staying there beyond um the initial phase and objective really uh like whether you bail it then or you bail later on you're always going to bail so you know don't sit there and try to convince me that there's some sort of heartstrings behind helping the local fucking people right it's self-evident by the way that there was a withdrawal that no one really gave a fuck at any time. Right. So stating that there was no other reason other than to create extremely wealthy private members of the international community with contracts, right? Like a bottomless pit of military spending. So that that's kind of how I look at it. Right. Like, the soldiers were always going to do what they were sent out to do because that's what they're trained to do and they're extremely diligent. And that's why, you know, we sit at the top of the, the you know, the, the food chain. But, you know, when there's no clear objective by the leadership, I find it very hard. And when I say leadership, I mean politically, I find it very hard to think that that's not just the objective is to not have an objective. And, I would say, given 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 what everything went down, I'd say that's pretty self-evident at this point that that was the objective. Um, yeah, no one ever really gave a fuck, evidently, right? Um, and I don't sit there and I'm not I'm not like ah uh, you know fuck the war or whatever. I built had an experience. I built bonds. I did what I was supposed to do. My brethren did what they were supposed to do. We all did our jobs, 
and did them diligently. And if there was anything from a military perspective that I'd say was a great outcome, we were basically able to hone trial and test um, tactics, techniques, and procedures in a combat environment so that we basically enhanced our capabilities before that there's another major, major global war. It basically, you know, you can have all these pretty assets, but if the tactics, techniques, and procedures that interlock these assets aren't honed, it kind of makes them very useless and in a lot of cases negligent, um, you know, in a large-scale war. So militarily, there's a positive, but, you know, if I look at it from a perspective of um, geopolitics, nothing's an accident. Yeah, it's it's like um, either there was just like a an incredible amount of incompetence, or there was it was done on purpose, right? Um, because if like like I said earlier, like I, there was a guy I, I I had him on the podcast, um, and he was interesting because he was in a, a national guard unit. And then he worked for the CIA, so he would go to Afghanistan uh, doing his National Guard duty, and then he would go home and then come back as a CIA officer, like, doing two different jobs, so it's kind of interesting. But, yeah. um, but yeah, he was just saying, like, in his National Guard capacity, he, he was there specifically to train uh, Afghan National Army units, and... Um, and he he would talk about how it was just it was frustrating because the guys training on the ground knew that they weren't ready, but whatever reporting went up the chain, it just it it transformed into oh yeah they're doing great you know things are great, and it was painting this picture that just wasn't true about the the ground situation, um, and it, it's it's just like you know things like that. Uh, it, it and 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 because of that, you, whoever the leader is at the time, right, the president uh, in the U.S. specifically, and I guess you know elsewhere, you know, coalition partners, you guys and and others, you know, they'll go on TV and say, oh yeah, things are going well, you know, the uh, the uh, the training is going well, it's like it's working, but in reality, it's not. It's like in, in reality, these units can't survive fighting these these insurgent groups or terrorist groups on their own and it's like you know what are we what are we doing this for if the result is going to be you know what it was uh in august uh 2021 you know with the pullout i mean it was a, a disaster and yeah. yeah uh so it's just like on a strategic level you know it just doesn't make sense and uh, there are many negative effects of that uh, I think in some ways uh, with with the pullout being as, as sort of bad as it was on a geopolitical level I think that that sent signals to Russia that perhaps uh, you know there was a level of in, incompetence uh, in the West and perhaps they can make a move uh, further into Ukraine and, and there won't be you know, whatever consequences or 
So, you know, there's so many second and third order effects of incompetent geopolitical strategy, you know, and it's like, um, it's just strange because there's so many smart people who work in the government, but somehow that, you know, they're, somehow what they bring to the table isn't translated into actual policy. You know, it just, it's, it's really insane. Well, there's no follow through on it. It's like, well, my job is done here. I create the policy, but you know, I'm the leader and I somehow don't hold it, um, that policy to be held accountable. Right. So I think China watched Russia watched and I think it's fair to say they're pretty fucking right. Like Russia has gone into Ukraine and there really hasn't been any grave consequence to Russia. Right. Um, going in, if America was, you know, unhappy or not unhappy, like they still had their soldiers die abroad. Nothing happened in Russia per se, other than economic. Um, yeah, China's watching that too, no doubt, tracking it. Yeah. And if we think we're in the, uh, you know, the this beautiful woke era, um, everything's a fairy tale, and that history won't repeat itself. We would have to be the most ignorant motherfuckers that have ever lived, like the most ignorant generation of all time, if we think that war will not repeat itself. Like, because every single piece of evidence over the last tracked six, seven thousand years or whatever that we're, you know, we, we have a grip on shows otherwise. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, and, uh, and, and, and that's why. And, and that's it in some ways it's why it's like it's important like for like the work that or, or, or sort of like you know what you were talking about like uh, how you guys were able to sort of hone your tactics and, and techniques and and, and in, in some way like you're um, it's, it's not just theory right like or it's, you know it's not just training right like you guys can implement certain things like 100% on the battlefield and 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 be effective in certain ways and 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 I think um, you know that like the whole war in Ukraine like it's become very political um, you know where like you can almost like if someone has certain political views you can almost tell like what their opinion is going to be on the war like should we support should we not whatever right but um just from a just from like a, an, a, a you know, a competence perspective, right? Like, I, I feel like one thing the war has done is, uh, in some ways, is ex- expose the Russian military, right? Like, um, yeah, like yeah. people, it's people, people thought they were like this big thing, and then it's like, damn, you, you guys are kind of having a hard time over there. Um, yeah, yeah. So it, it's it's different from like, and I, I guess in some ways, in the last twenty years of of like this sort of counterterrorism. Uh, wars that's been happening you know all over the world really not just the middle east but um you know people look and go oh like you know the the russians have their special forces you know just like how we have ours or or whatever right and or they have their elite uh infantry just how we have ours and um or, or just not even the elite just the sort of normal infantry um and and you go oh like you know they can do anything just like these Western special forces units can do, or, or these uh, Western infantry units can do. Uh, and then when 
they're in an actual war against competent uh, opponents and the Ukrainians, um, you know, it, it's a struggle, right? It's, it's not as easy as it seems. And I think in some ways the, the Chinese uh, perhaps were, or perhaps they still are and they still may make a move on Taiwan. Um, I, I think the, the amount of resistance that the Ukrainians are putting up maybe gave them pause, uh, like maybe gave the Chinese pause potentially uh, yeah. in any potential plans to invade Taiwan. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely an interesting time, right? Like it's only a matter of time till China does take Taiwan, I guess, right? They're pretty, pretty transparent about it. And in the end of the day, China has never really tried to conquer anywhere that they didn't think was China. Um, they're not like an empire as such, right? Maybe an economic empire globally, but they're definitely not, um, you know, they're not, they're, they build a wall to keep people in and keep people out, right? And they've always, they've always kind of kept that general theory. But, you know, I got to, yeah, I got to be honest. I'm like, I'm pretty far out of the, the, these things these days, right? Like I generally don't have so much of these conversations. I, I, um, once I realized that it's like the soldiers didn't win the war for the Roman em- didn't lose the war for the Roman empire or the collapse of the empire, it kind of, you know, it's, it all comes top down from that, the general corruption, apathy, inept self-interest of the political leaders, right. And, and man's quest for power, so for me, it's like, you know, my next generation probably be in Brazil or, or somewhere that's kind of well out of the circus. Um, and that's just, you know, just sort of maybe personal because it's, it's really, it's not like, I'm not following it with, with high hopes. I'll tell you that much. And it's not even just a war or geopolitics perspective. It might be government perspective or whatnot. And it's fine. It's like, Hey, it's this direction, these country, Australia or whatever wants to go, God bless them. Good luck out there. Um, not yeah. for me. Yeah. You know what I mean? This would be where I kind of get off the train. I did my part, you know, as the Roman legionnaire. It's, it's, you know, it's, um, it's up to the, uh, the emperor and the senators to, to do theirs. And they're evidently not. And, you know, it, it's, it's interesting too, because I, like, I wonder like the, the positions that, the sort of public or media takes like I wonder like what effect that has on the guy on the soldiers right like um, I think generally speaking uh, the U.S. is pretty patriotic so I, I think um, you know guys feel support um, in general but um, in in some ways that that could almost be down political lines in the U.S. like people who are, are more liberal may not. I mean, I know a bunch of liberals who support the military and, and all that, but there could be a, a percentage of liberals who are, like, anti-establishment and, like, uh, you know, don't fund the military. And, and, and I, I guess to some point, like, there is a point in that, um, like, to not do stupid foreign policy and, and, or whatever. But um, I think overall, like, guys get out the military and feel a ton of support in the U.S., um, but I, I know, like in the in the UK, um, there's been situations where, uh, you know, just maybe media or media and government kind of uh, make 
guys or, or guys and girls feel that, um, you know, perhaps their service isn't supported in such a way. Uh, and I, I think, you know, th- that maybe has an effect of like, you know, like, fuck it, I, I don't want anything to do with this. Um, or, or, or I don't want my kids having anything to do yeah. with this, you know. Um, and um, and, and I guess the, I guess there's some of that in Australia potentially too. Um, and oh, it, definitely. The British yeah. Empire, the British Empire loves that. Like I go to America, and if I I don't mention, you know, I learned really well not to mention I was in the military and just not even I had long hair and shit when I was in the unit. So it's like I'd been not in the military for a long time, even whilst I was in the military. Right? I had dear friends when I was on leave that, that you know for. You know, I was, I was taking time to chill out whilst I was still serving in the U.S. that would have no idea in the entire time I was there that I was even in the military. And then even post-service for years when I was living abroad and, and had friends and, like, not even many of them, almost entirely just all of them would have no idea. I just wasn't something that I, I talked about. But if I did in America, you're welcome with pretty goddamn open arms. And that is for sure not the case in Australia at all, you know. Um, Australians love that. I think I talked about in the last conversation with you that love that tall poppy syndrome, crabs in a bucket thing, right? Um, yeah, there's, there's really no genuine support. Uh, and you, you get, we got a, we got a day where there's like an Anzac day where there's like a march and whatnot. And a lot of people come out to, to watch the parade for these soldiers and sailors and whatnot. And I, and I do appreciate that. Right. But, um, you know, just from our media down, which kind of casts its influence, it's evident in Australia they don't give a fuck and maybe even the opposite of giving a fuck where they like going out of their way to, to like just, you know, do the crabs in a bucket persecution of guys in many ways. Like it kind of, and, it, and it, it's shitty because it's like, you know, the guys are, Post-Vietnam, they weren't liked, right? Okay. But they got spat on in the street, and then the next day they were able to get on with their lives. But when it comes to the media, um, you know, they just get metaphorically spat on every day. And I think a lot of the guys are just like to go about their fucking lives again. Um, yeah, I don't know if – I don't really know of much positive – media per se in Australia for the military. And I think that's a thing Australia ever really bought into. Um, and I'd like to say that's a modern thing. This is one of the things I kind of got a little bit off the bandwagon, bandwagon of, of a, a buying into the nationalism in Australia a little bit was I, when I was first deployed to Afghanistan, my mother sent me this book. It was called Australian War Diaries. And when I was in Afghan, I was like, wow, the Australian public are really apathetic about this. They do not give a fuck. And as I read the war diaries, and it was letters from soldiers to their spouses or family in World War, in the Boer War, before World War One, it was in South Africa, the British Empire thing, um, World War One, World War Two, and everything remained consistent from every soldier that visited home for some short leave or whatever. And they were like, fuck, I hope this country realizes there's a war going on before it's too late. And it was like even up to including that the, the general populace were like didn't want to use their money in the country just in case Australia lost 
so that they could get out and take their money or whatever with them. And it was just like, wait a second, you've got guys overseas fighting and you're hedging your bets on. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. Like, and you know, and it was just, it was, anyway, it's been somewhat a little bit um, consistent, I think, throughout history a little bit in Australia. And it, it might just be a British Empire thing, but I even do feel that the British are, are far more patriotic. I think Australia is just unlike the US and England has never really seen uh, a war on their footstep per se. And I say that because Australia had used censorship and a little bit of propaganda in World War II to not show that the Japanese were so close to their shore and that the Japanese had technically invaded Australian territory, which Papua New Guinea was at the time. Um, they were pretty damn close. But so the Australian citizens never knew that, never knew the fear or the or the understanding or, you know, awareness of that. Even when Darwin was bombed, they they kept that from the media. And that's like a city in the north. So yeah, so I, I just feel like um, British Empire as opposed to America has a very different stance on their public um, uh, treatment of veterans and historically, I believe is the way to put it. So it's interesting. So um, my like my main audience is in the U.S. Um, like when just looking at uh, analytics and stuff. Um, but like second and third. Uh, hold on. Let me just so I can be accurate here. Hold on. One second. Hold on. Yeah, so my my main audience is in the U.S., but my it's interesting. My my biggest audience outside of the U.S. is in Australia. So, us. Um, yeah, so it, it's interesting, and I mean, I've done a bunch of podcasts with um, like uh, Australian special forces. I, I spoke to a Australian reporter once, um, or twice at rather, uh, two different ones, and um, uh, so obviously there's um. You know, there are patriotic Australians and people who support the military and people who are interested in, in hearing from, you know, guys like yourself. Um, so do you think it's like a do you think like it's just a, 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 a deal, a deal where people don't have like a like, is it like a national identity thing? Like, like, what do you think it is that kind of just um may you know influence the media to to have you know whatever opinion they have and, and then that sort of bleeds into the population's thoughts right like what do you think it is like do you think people just aren't patriotic or i i think there there's two things right like in america as you say you've <laughs> the media is really the media or the i don't know the the U.S. oligarchy or global oligarch, whatever however you want to look at it, um, it's really created a system where it just divides and polarizes, right? And it's got people on their political football teams, 
it's all it's really just down to that right you, you're on this football team you're on this football team you don't like each other you you will listen to hear what the leaders of your football team tells you to think before you start sprouting it um that's the case in america and and i guess everywhere else in the west right it's just dividing right and probably just giant distraction of sorts but in the U.S., you were right when you said that I, I do – I have friends in the U.S. that are like pretty hardline liberal and pretty hardline conservative and everywhere in between, and they um, they wholeheartedly support the military. Like I get message – I'm not going to – I'm not going to fucking lie. Obviously, I have a shit ton of Australian friends and family. I get far more messages per year – to thank me for my service by American friends and That's acquaintances. Crazy. Yeah. By far, not even fucking maybe from Americans. And then in Australia, you've got the same political football team system, right? Where they pit it off against each other and the media fans the flames. Um, but one, one football team is like kind of in, but a little bit apathetic just because of, just her historical stance in Australia of never seeing war. So they don't really care about the whole outcome of it too much. And the other is like, like proper crabs in a bucket trying to pull guys down and make it a non thing. And, you know, whatever the next big thing is to distract that, like it's not something they support and they even counter support the military in every, every fashion. Right. Um, like as yeah, so like, like the kind of way that you, I guess, you see people not liking the police in the U.S. That's kind of that political football team, but with with the military, I'd say, and you know, that's yeah, that's the two. That's the way I sort of see the two landscapes. Mm, that's pretty interesting. So, so would you say, um, in general, uh, I mean, not to get like too much into politics or anything, but like in general. In Australia, people are kind of more left-leaning. Yeah, yeah, they, they love that. Um, I'd say they're more, they're more, I guess, I'd say mid-ground as a whole. So, and therefore they predominantly lean very, uh, very left if they're going to lean in any direction, right? Um. And that, yeah, that's definitely fair to say. I'd say the British Empire and uh, Canada, England, New Zealand, Australia, I'd say say all of them really. Um, and I think that just comes from just being good times. Insulate, you know, that, that saying that good times um, creates, you know, good times create weak men, weak men create hard times. Yeah. You know, hard times. Yeah, that cycle. And I, the British Empire have like they have a really good system of law. People work pretty damn professionally they have a strong unemotional work ethic which means it's like that british reservation no one really ever truly connects with their family members and truly understands and knows each other at a, at a deep level um you go your entire life without truly knowing yourself or anyone else in your family um everyone's super reserved but by god when we want to you know have food on the table or, or or an item in our house or a comfortable lounge we've got it so it's like and healthcare and all these other things like you know we've really got daddy that is in the government taking care of us so it's it's um 
yeah, it's it makes it a very easy insulated society to be very ignorant of the rest of the world, and God bless them, that that that's fine. Like I, I don't consider myself um, on any side of the spectrum. I, I sit in the center and kind of call bullshit on everything as I see it, or you know, um, as I operate more on an international spectrum now, I just don't even watch the fucking news. I don't care. I don't care to be bought into it. And, uh, you know, and I'm like a, something really cool that a lot of the listeners might definitely probably not know. Um, I've gone into a lot of indigenous circles and ayahuasca circles and all these people have sat around like, you know, a fire on these medicines or whatever. And looked at myself and like, holy shit, am I am I a hippie? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and it's like it's been pretty fucking funny and confronting. And I've had a good laugh about it with some guys, right? But the leaders in these indigenous circles and the people on the fringe of the indigenous circles and the medicinal circles and whatnot, they're actually not. Um, and this will go to probably surprise people. They're not left leaning. Yeah, I, I think that's probably a misconception that people have, like generally. Massive. Yeah, they think that it's because they like believe in connection to the heart and the universe and the God and all these and, and the, the presence of these things and and like caring about your fellow man and what they're actually, they're not. I think they believe it in a level of like responsibility of the tribe um, and prioritization of things. So that, that there was a super, that was very interesting for me to learn <laughs> when I went through there. I'm like, oh, wow. Like it's, it's yeah, that, that there was a bit of a, a bit of an eye opener because I think there's an expectation for them to be, um, you know, hugging it all out per se. But I think there's a level, there's a strong level of tribal responsibility there of that, that healthy masculine and healthy sort of feminine energies that they strive for and that functioning in their tribes and traditionally always has functioned for like tens of thousands of years. So why the fuck would they break it or play with fire? Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and I, you know, it's, that's such an interesting point because I, I feel like, um, like people try and like reinvent the wheel, right? Like, like some, like it's almost when I think about it, this is kind of how I, I think about it. Like a, a kid just graduates college and, um, obviously, you know, you, you have to work hard, you have to study, you have to learn, um, but you're still inexperienced for the most part. So, like, a, a mm. kid graduates college and, and gets out and, may you know, thinks, like, you know, I'm on top of the world or, you know, I, I've been, I have my head in these books for four years, six years, eight years, whatever it may be. And they feel like they can sort of reinvent the wheel. But uh, what, what I feel pe- in the West in particular um, is that people fail to realize like some of these traditions that we have and uh, and things that um, they are things that have been done for thousands of years and it's like it, these things aren't random like like they didn't just randomly decide that this is what was best for society this was like mm. trial and error and this is what we came up with like this is the best way you know um so I feel like people um, almost have like that college kid mentality where it's like we're going to reinvent the wheel um, on certain things. 
and and it's such an interesting dynamic because I was I meant to ask you about like you know if you felt there was a difference um, between like Australia and like some of these places where where you I know you've sort of been like you know on uh, in many ways to sort of help you know heal you through your your journey post military right and um and and I, you know I agree I think there's a a, a popular misconception like. There are elements of, you know, like taking ayahuasca and, and sort of, you know, healing yourself that probably appeals to like left leaning folks, you know, in the West or whatever. Um, but there's an element of of those cultures that are very traditional. And, mm. um, I, you know, I, like growing up in New York, right, like New York is a, a, a very international city and. I guess for the most part, like people lean left a little a bit in New York and and sort of vote that way. But within within some of the cultures that are here, um, you know, from from the Caribbean, from Central America, South America, there's a very traditional element or baseline to the culture, right? Like like gender roles are very traditional. Uh, even the the language. Uh, it's it's very masculine or feminine, like in in the in the Spanish language, right? Um, so, like, yes, there's there's some left leaning things or or things that may typically be associated with liberals in some of it, but there's a very traditional aspect to it as well. And I think the culture wouldn't be what it is without both of those things, right? Yeah, yeah. So it's one of the things that's really cool is. If people go to the ayahuasca retreat and have the ignorance to think that they're like they're done, one and done, and it's kind of like a self-serving ego thing to go back and live in the illusion that everything's all right until you start repeating your your patterns and whatever. And there's a big thing in the circles where they're like integrate, you know, like you know, cool, you know, taking the medicine's the easy part, or you know, there's a bit of courage there for people because it's like they have a sense of fear of death, but it's like post is like where the work takes. But the people who consistently turn up, and I got to meet a lot of people that were coming from different walks of life and and taking it, what would happen is they would create the, the men would create the healthiest masculine fucking version of themselves. And they could come in and they could come in misguided from, from family, like confused um, on many fronts. Um, like a bit effeminate, um, just unsure of themselves and just anything that was really kind of somewhere lost in between masculine and feminine. And they would go through it and they would fucking come out the other side with their entire life on track and honed and the most healthy masculine version that you'd look at and you go, you go, you know, when you look at a, a man, and you go, that dude will make a great fucking father. Like yeah. he hasn't even got kids, but he is fucking honed to be a father with that responsibility, the way they carry themselves. And the crazy thing is that the women come out so fucking feminine and so healthy in their femininity. And, but it takes work, right? It's not just like, Hey, I, I did it. I did it. I took ayahuasca once or I went to a retreat once. It was like, no, these are the people that kept turning up. Um, and that there remained true, like the best 
sort of you call it healing or whatever, right? I, I look, I do believe in healing. Obviously, I talked about ayahuasca and stem cells, but post healing, there is a there's got to be a fucking journey where you move on to do other great shit with your life, you know, yeah. missions and, and things that are bigger than you, you know, like, um, you know, was it Maslow's hierarchy of needs, like self actualization, um, and you've got to get back on that that path again, right? But you know, if if you're trying to do that in your ship it's still got fucking holes in the side obviously that makes that pretty damn hard but then again once that ship post all these medicines and regenerative medicines gets fixed 100 percent, you know well that ship's gonna feel pretty fucking useless sitting in in the harbor and not orientating itself to a direction right um and yeah, just getting back to that, it, it was really beautiful to see the guys go through and the girls go through these really finding their healthy masculine and healthy, like feminine versions of themselves. And the crazy thing was they would take the medicine and they wouldn't really talk about it all to each other over the time period until later on. But their ideas and that sense of themselves would all fucking align when they finally did. And it was crazy how much it all very much aligned to that traditional indigenous um, community and universally too. It, it was it was really profound. And then as they kept taking it, once they'd healed themselves, they were able to work with the medicines to start orientating them their lives to conquer fears and move on to new things that were bigger than themselves and important life missions and life works and journeys and and I think that there is a, that there was a really beautiful part um, of, of you know of what the medicines um, change in people. Yeah, and in many ways, I, I feel like it, it it comes like full circle, right, to what you said before, where it's like you know the those sort of in the sort of British sphere of influence, um, you know, it's been peaceful, relatively peaceful for a long time. So that kind of, you know, we get into that cycle of like, like you said, um, you know, hard times create strong men, you know, good times create weak men, whatever, right? And uh, I feel like on the tail end of that, where we've been in a period of good times for, for a relatively good times for uh, an extended period we we sort of like create problems you know or we we like create things right like like uh, people say like first world problems right like we, we create these things within our society that we sort of fight and bicker over mm. but in like in in the you know air quotes in the real world like outside of the the bubble of the US or, or the UK or Australia or whatever um, people don't have time to worry about those things, right? Like, like, uh, you know, I, I've been doing some research. I'm looking at some things that's happening in, in certain parts of Africa that I'm probably going to write about. And just doing the research, reading through some of the, the situations that people are, are going through, it's like people, people are trying to survive in, in a lot of parts of the world. And it could be... Um, 
trying to survive because there's not enough food or there's not clean water to drink or, um, you know, there are groups of armed men just, you know, savagely going around and killing people, right? Like, mm-hmm. when when you're in a, a situation where you need to survive and you need to take care of yourself and your family, like, and, and not, like, you know, like, no bullshit, like, you don't have time to worry about some of the things that we argue and fight about in the West, right? Like, like your your focus is on surviving and 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 uh, and having those basic baseline necessities. Whereas, like over here, I feel like people like like if you're poor in the U.S., you still have somewhere to live. I mean, there's of course there's homeless people, you know, without a doubt. But like for the most part, like you still have somewhere to live. You you still have food on the table, and you still have the potential to you know elevate yourself you can go to school there's public school you can you know go to college and it'll be paid for potentially like so there's there's like i just feel like we create these issues and it causes confusion and like people have to i mean you know it's evident like people have to go outside of that sort of uh western influence and and go elsewhere to to find themselves again you know, as people do the ayahuasca, I mean, um, you know, I know a bunch of guys who were, uh, in particular, I know a bunch of SEALs, Navy SEALs, who uh, went and, and gone on these sort of ayahuasca trips, and, and they talk about how it's really helped them uh, post-military. Um, but but I just feel like we create so many of the issues that we have, and, and it's like, Again, it's those first world problems, right? Like people are are trying to survive in other parts of the world and and deal with things that are difficult, and and we just kind of create these these like surface level issues and and just confusion and 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 all, and it's just kind of stupid in a way. Yeah, we love getting upset about the next thing. You know, I'm you know I'm all <laughs> everyone loves like painting their profile picture with the next thing, and nothing nothing polarizes it. Sorry, silhouettes it more than, and I. Uh, do, you, do you see that that the latest with that um, the sound of freedom, right? And I'd actually known one of the guys that that, that I'd known him for, for years as he publicly spoke in front of pretty much just billionaires, who, um, uh, and I haven't watched the movie, so I don't know which character would be what they called him in that. But basically he rescued like 5,000 kids impersonating a rich American, and he was rich American, impersonating a rich American in conjunction with FBI and whatnot to do stings on child sex trafficking, right? Mm. Uh, had the guy in there that was kind of like the, I think a CIA or, or FBI, um, I can't, can't remember, which is the, the main guy that around the movie, but they actually had the guy that was like the bait <laughs> per se, where all these people would bring all these kids for huge sex parties and whatnot. Um, that he had to pretend and act and go through that whole thing, like to get as many kids as he could to come for this huge party and then do a sting. And he had to pretend to go down with him and so on and so on. And he's now, you know, gone pretty public. He was trying to protect his identity for security for a long time. Now he's like, fuck that. It's, it's worth more to get this out there. And that's everywhere, right? That's in every fucking continent. Yeah. And it's like, viral um sex trafficking and child sex trafficking and i think it would be universally fair to say that that's probably at the top of the fucking list 
So we can even look at like the first and the third world problems. But one thing that we have that is universal is like sex trafficking, but more importantly, child sex trafficking. Like the shit that he said at some of these things is fucking harrowing, right? Yeah. Like this man talking is fucking harrowing. Um, And I've heard him speak several times, fortunately slash unfortunately. And you think that that's where like universally align, right? And, and, And it would really silhouette that the shit that we're arguing about is not that fucking important on the hierarchy of important shit, right? Of getting upset about, but, but we don't, which means that people are predominantly getting upset about shit just for the, the, I don't know if it's the the ego, the, the virtue signaling, the whatever the fuck it is that they need the attention for. But instead of focusing on like the worst fucking issue, we're focusing on petty dog shit. And, uh, and I use that one as the example and I have for several years now, but it's only really interesting that the movie's only just been released and just has been kind of spreading the message as aggressively and as fast as it has, because it's like, I sort of been watching this in the background and, and people have been promoting this kind of news and information about this and no one's given a fuck. It just goes to show that people are, were getting upset about the next virtue signal thing to show how on board they are with the virtue signal thing, even though they truly really don't give a fuck. Because if they did, they'd start at the top of the list and jump on board shit like that, that really, for whatever reason, doesn't get the traction. Um, what's the name of the movie? The Sound of Freedom. Yeah, it's, a, it's actually, it's interesting, right? I, um, when I was saying before about not watching the news, I actually stopped watching the news. So I get kind of like anything that sort of pops up in social media and I really limit my social media to quite aggressively, almost forget about it in many ways. Um, I've seen just on the peripherals of social media, because I follow this guy, right, that I was just talking about. And, you know, the movie got released and I think it outperformed Indiana Jones by several million Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I know what this is. Okay. It outperformed Indiana Jones last, and that that might have been two days ago or something. I saw something on that, so it could have changed. Who knows? Experts say that China is hoarding a massive amount of food. They will soon have over two-thirds of the globe's corn reserves and over half of its rice and over half of its wheat. But when asked about it, China lies. One China expert says that they, of course, will never admit to something like that. Well, what does China know that we don't? When it comes to global food shortages, China is the canary in the coal mine. You see, China is the world's number one importer of food. They rely on the rest of the world to keep their people fed. So they can't afford to mess up or there will be riots, civil panic, or even worse, over a billion people won't have food to eat. What does this mean for Americans like you and me? Two words, food shortages. That's why it's a smart idea to stock up on a kit of the best-selling Four Patriots survival food. Create your own stockpile of the best-selling Four Patriots survival food kits. It's hand-picked in the USA. The kits are compact and they stack easily. They have different delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners. And their five-star reviews on the website rave about the flavor and taste. Right now, you can get 10% off your first 
purchase of Four Patriot Survival Food by typing in the code RECON at checkout. Just go to fourpatriots.com and use RECON to get 10% off your first purchase of Four Patriot Survival Food. That's fourpatriots.com. Use the code RECON. Okay, okay, yeah, not, okay, now I know what's going on. Yeah, so the uh, the actor, the main actor, he plays Tim Ballard. Uh, Tim Ballard was a, I'm not sure if he was a, I think he was an officer at the CIA. And um, and he runs a whole organization where they do this uh, counter-trafficking work. Um, and I know, I know several folks who are, are involved with that organization. Um, and so w- one thing that's positive that I will say is... Um, at least in the states, in the last you know whatever, ten probably ten years or so, or maybe a little longer, organizations like the one that he runs have been popping up, where they are, the founders are like former uh, intelligence officers or special operations guys, and they're using their skills that they gained, you know, fighting terrorism or or whatever, uh, you know, different parts of the world targeting people. And they're using those skill sets to target traffickers and pimps and, and stuff like that. And, um, you know, just, just sort of on the topic of that, uh, a, a friend of mine, he was a, a Delta Force officer. And uh, I, I think he was in for like 20, 20 or 20 plus years. And uh, since he's been out, he, th- that's been his main focus is like counter sex trafficking work. And when he first started, he was doing it strictly inside the U.S. And um, they had a a fundraising event uh, down at the World Trade Center in Manhattan. And uh, so I went and there were a bunch of like, you know, ex-CIA guys and Delta Force guys there. um, And they gave this presentation to all these potential uh, uh, sort of like Wall Street folks who were going to give some funding to them. To, to do these counter sex traffic operations and um, he gave a, a like just a breakdown of the stats of like how many young boys and girls are, are being uh, trafficked inside the US and how easy it was to just like like you can just go on these websites and just order literally order kids like like you're ordering food it's, it's insane and um and, but one of the things he, he talked about in the presentation was um, that they're only looking at stuff in English. Like, they're seeing stuff in Chinese and Russian and, and, um, and uh, you know, in Arabic. And, and it, just the numbers are astronomical of how many kids are trafficked every year. It's, it's really, like, disturbing. Um, but, but on the positive side, I will say there are a ton of organizations that are now... Um, focusing on, on on countering this stuff um and and you know this this movie is gonna help bring that to the forefront because I, I guess like so your average citizen might not be aware that like these organizations exist uh and that there are folks who are you know using their skill sets that they learned in the government uh to target these people uh but yeah it, it's fantastic stuff for sure yeah, it's and and it, this is this is the point, right? Like, the media is driven, um, everyone to their political football time team to such a degree that something as obvious as fucking this as a cause to unite behind. As a yeah, team, it becomes yeah, it becomes political. Yeah, it's crazy. 
it will become someone's political football team. So therefore, the other po- football team, I'm going to call them that because it's as fucking retarded as that, the other football team will literally, like, ignore the topic or find a way for it not to be in the media or not to be an important topic to be discussed just so their other political football team loses. And yeah. it is it is absolute pure retarded. Like, it's – there is – so as I look here, and I actually think – I don't think this is true. I think the number statistics are much higher. It's like – so there's more than one million children annually that are in that are bought and sold in the commercial sex trade. I think this I think it's like maybe 40 million people that are still technically slaves, and whatever maybe like 10 million of them are like sex slaves, and one million of those are child sex slaves. And it's anyway the the, the stories that I heard from this I've heard from this guy I've heard many times are, are fucking harrowing. Um, and he, his biggest thing that he talks about it is, um, he talks about that the um, the demand is the only way to combat it. Because he's like, I can't go on enough missions to stop the flow of them finding more kids, kidnapping more kids or whatever. He goes, so you've got to stop the demand. And he goes, so really there needs to be an awareness and such an awareness of it that forces the governments like to shut down and pay, you know, invest more money in shutting down websites and child trafficking organizations and so on and so on. Because he goes, there's no, there seems to be no shortage of, of, of them finding fucking kids somehow. And that part there, he goes, I could rescue kids all fucking day until I eventually get my number up and get killed doing it and he goes but that would just would doesn't even make a dent at the speed of which it's growing which is crazy because it's one of the things he said was it's the number one global fastest um growing enterprise and it's the most profitable Um, that's so crazy yeah it's yeah it's pretty pretty real shit um so hopefully that film does bring some significant awareness to that. And maybe, just fucking maybe, it might become something that I think everyone could universally get behind. Yeah, absolutely. And and there are ways, you know, since we're on this topic, I'll just speak about it a little bit. There are ways that, um, you know, sort of your average person can get involved. Um, and, you know, there are organizations that you can sort of just donate to or whatever, and, and that's one way. But another way is... Um, there's a, a discipline uh, called open source intelligence, and I, I've spoken about it, you know, quite a bit in the last, I don't know, on the podcast that I've done this year. Um, and it's, it's basically a, a high-level way of uh, finding information that's on the open web. Um, and, you know, that it... it when you just have the information, it isn't considered intelligence. But when you're able to use the information to solve a problem or, or answer a question, uh, that's when it's kind of it becomes the intelligence part. Um, mm. So I, I do some OSINT. That's what is uh, that's the uh, the acronym. Uh, and there are plenty of folks who do OSINT. Um, but it's now be, it's now getting to a level where governments around the world are starting to fund programs to have. Uh, open source intelligence analysts who work for the government and they do specific things. Um, but 
one way that people, if, you know, they're interested in getting involved in, in any of the counter sex trafficking work is um, you can learn how to do OSINT. Uh, and the the guy I spoke about who is a, a Delta Force commander, uh, he now runs an organization called Skull Games. Um, and what they do is they, uh, you know, they'll have a bunch of people come together and uh, folks who are targeters, who, you know, who, who know how to search for people and search for things. And then people who know OSINT, open source intelligence techniques. And they'll just get together and, and sit down and, and have these periods where they're doing intense research and finding victims of sex trafficking and finding uh, the person who's trafficking them uh, all through using open source uh, searching techniques. And uh, they have relationships with local and federal uh, law enforcement and they'll get the information and pass that on. And then when the information gets passed on, then the the police or the, the federal agency will be able to uh, actually make a move on and and break up some of these networks. Um, so it's just uh, Skull Games is the name of the organization, um, and it's ran by former U.S. like special operations guys. And um, so there's just many ways that people can contribute uh, to this stuff. Like you don't have to be like a you know, ex-Special Forces or ex-Intelligence Officer to, to contribute. So it's just something for people to think about. Um, okay, so let's um, let's switch it up a little bit. Um, uh, you, you sent me a thing, uh, a link, uh, about Operator Syndrome. Um, and, and this yeah. is something that, you know, guys in the U.S., in Australia, the U.K., New Zealand, I mean, all over Canada deal with um can you just talk a little bit about what it is um i mean we we kind of like you know in the last episode i guess spoke about it without naming this but uh can you just like talk about it a bit so this is it's pretty fucking wild right like just as a result of serving in special operations you will um and this is this is the the craziest thing about this is it's almost it's basically conclusively evident that it's not a maybe there's a base level of symptoms that you will walk away from your special operations career with. And obviously most infantry guys will probably get something very similar to this as well. And if I can, if I can read, uh, let, let me go on here on the, on the website. This is on the NIH website, right? So just make sure I'm reading something that's, that's sort of like clinical, right? Um, Operator syndrome, this includes um, interrelated health and functional impairments, including traumatic brain injury effects, endocrine dysfunction, sleep disturbance, obstructive sleep, apnea, chronic joint, back pain, orthopedic problems, headaches. And then it goes into things like substance abuse, depression, suicide, anger, worry, rumination, stress, reactivity, marital, family and communal dysfunction problems with sexual health and intimacy, being on guard, hypervigilant, memory um, issues, concentration, cognitive impairments, um, vestibular and vision impairments, challenges of the transition from military to civilian life and common uh, existential issues. Now, that's, that's like not to say you won't have more than that. That's the base level that they just diagnose you with as a result of serving as an operator. 
So it's like we basically concluded that every one of the operators that comes out at least has them. Um, and therefore, you know, the longer you're in or whatever, the worse and more exacerbated those are and depending on your career and whatnot, um, we'll, we'll have that. And that's that's pretty fucking out of control, right, to know that if you sign – you know, as a government, you're going to sign people up to that with no real plan to treat that. Yeah. And that's kind of, I guess, where I, you know, I, I had this plus some. Um, and that's kind of where I'm going with the, the Warrior Refit program, right? Regenerative medicines to reverse the these, whatever is affected inside of you that has created these symptoms, right? Um and I, I don't know where, like, where the fuck we start, per se, on, like, pulling threads. But I had this doctor in the, in the unit, and he, he was great because you'd come to him and he'd be like, well, we can send you to do test, text, tests. But he's like, we'd have to wait. might be inclusive. We'd have to do other tests and so on and so on. But he goes, but I kind of know the symptoms. I kind of know where it's probably coming from. And he goes, to be honest, I'd rather scatter gun a lot of these things so that you can keep doing your job and doing what you need to do and so on and so on in the, in the interest of you and getting, getting this treated. Um, and that generally fucking worked. And I think with regenerative medicines, the same thing is kind of how I applied it towards my um, autoimmunity, right? Or the doctor did. They were like, well, we don't exactly know what caused it. There's a chicken or the egg in some things. There's hormone imbalances there's just a whole bunch of shit everywhere right that has really been affected you can see that, that there's there's not just one thing underlying all of this right other than the service when it when someone reads about what the operator syndrome is but with the regenerative medicine you can pretty much scatter a gunnet in the body to go and conduct regeneration almost as if it's like the hands of god right going in there replacing dead or missing cells and that's that that's kind of essentially where I'm, you know, where, where I'm going with this and this and this strategy and why, um, you know, situations like this are pretty fucked up, right? Like that literally every operator will have as a baseline this when they leave. So, okay, so I have a few questions. So um, I, I want to talk just a little bit about like what causes this. Um, so uh, essentially, uh, a lot of this has, and, and I guess this is why the, the, the stem cell therapies is effective and some of these other treatments are, because there's actually a, a physical thing that's happening in the brain, right? Like, um, so like, you know, this is caused from like constant like concussions and things like that on the brain. Um, and I guess like guys who um, were blown up or or just have repeated exposure to uh, like concussions, right? Like, and and this is even like I guess you don't necessarily even have to have been like blown up in combat or 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 been in some sort of catastrophic situation that really sort of rocks your brain, but just being like like all the training you guys do, right? Like you're, you know, for example. Like yeah, like the kill house, right? Like yeah, firing a rifle indoors, yeah, snibs, blowing indoors, and all that stuff. Just standing next to it and doing that a couple of thousand times, like each time adds up. Yeah, and um, 
So uh, I don't remember if I asked this last time, but were mm-hmm. were you like ever blown up or anything in combat, or like? Uh... No, no, I wasn't. I wasn't blown up. Um, thank fuck. Okay, so, okay, so yeah, so uh, you know, just even when when talking about this, like, I, I guess people like who have like a general understanding of it may may think like. Oh, like guys who have this are just guys who've been blown up, or, or, you know, like had like an, uh, you know, an explosion go off near them, kind of thing, uh, and and that is what caused the damage. But it's in many ways, uh, it, it's not even that. It's like it's the training, um, and like if you, you know, anyone listening, uh, I guess especially in America, um, if you've ever shot a gun before. Uh, and especially if you're indoors, you can feel like the concussion, you know. Um, I, I, a few years ago, I was down in Georgia, uh, and I went to a, a gun range. And um, the first day, we were just shooting pistols and or pistol caliber guns. But then the second day we went, um, we shot some 5.56. Five, um, and it's like they take you to a different part of the, the indoor range. But it's a it's a smaller space. Um, so in this in this space, there's two lanes. Uh, so there was a guy next to me shooting. Uh, I, I think it was some kind of like M4 or something. Um, and and I was shooting a, 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 a it was a five five six round. And when you're shooting, you can just feel the booms and the concussion. It's 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 super loud. And um, but you like you feel it through your whole body. Every time the guy next to me shot, like I felt it. Um, so, you know, doing that for years and years, um, and then, it's, of course, you guys work with explosives, uh, that has an effect on, on the brain, um, and, and it, it causes, like, actual damage. And, uh, and I guess the, like, the stem cell, the reason why it's effective is because the stem cells and, and some of these other treatments help uh, physically repair the, that damage. Is, is that it, essentially? Yeah, so you've got to do different protocols, right? Like I did one of them that was in the spinal fluid, so I had to get a neurosurgeon to put it in my spinal canal, which you go up and pierce the blood-brain barrier. So it, it actually, so TBI is like the outer layer of the brain turns to like gray fucking dead brain um, as a result of, you know, this. So you shoot like large caliber or explosives or rockets or just standing next to a wall charge like the walls are so thick in afghan like we blow holes in walls that would make it seem like like it was an earthquake right and we'd stand next to them and then run through the 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 fucking the wall um and that there will turn your brain um to you know yeah basically destroy the outer the outer layer as i understand it um and then really there's no plan for rebuilding that at the moment inside veterans affairs and the military other than just taking pharmaceutical tablets to to numb whatever issues that causes um like treating the symptoms per se and you know things like stem cells are the regenerative version of that like i i don't as a result of stem cells i don't have these issues like almost but I had them and some when I got out like now I've really kind of worked fucking up like don't get me wrong the chronic joint back pain orthopedic problems and shit I 
I've treated most of them as good as I can, but how good was I meant to be when I hit fucking 35 anyway, right? That's the question. Like, was my body always going to be pretty beaten up? But they're in pretty damn good order compared to when I left. Like, I couldn't turn a steering wheel when I fucking left. Um, I couldn't squat down below anywhere near 90 degrees, actually, because it would just tear up the back of my kneecaps. Um, you know, but all these other things, fucking as a result of the, the treatment, they're, they're in pretty damn good order. Um, so, yeah, that's why I'm a bit of an advocate for the whole that, you know, the stem cells on, on, on a bit of a scattergun approach to, to many conditions and also preventative treatments. Like how good would it be for soldiers to get those protocols as preventative every fucking year, um, during their service, you know, that it would be a, it would be a false multiplier. You, you wouldn't have the turnover rates. You'd have your members in pretty damn good condition. Yeah. I mean, that's a great point. Um, and so, so warrior refit um, is that like like one of your your sort of goals or your overall goal or objective is to um, is to get that sort of that make that connection between the treatment and and the operators. Yeah. So essentially, what my my goal is to I targeted the Five Eyes community right just because we've always had each other's back and in particular in the last the last war, right? Um, and that I believe that if one of the serving militaries or the veterans affairs in that community, if their domino goes down, they get knocked down and accept this, accept um, stem cells and other regenerative medicines in that community, then the other dominoes will fall. And that's why it's a bit strategical in that sense. So not silly just operators, to be honest, I've got to be impartial to this and super ethical. It's starting with the guys who are, who are truly like the most fucked up and I don't even get to elect them in any capacity. And I won't just for ethical purposes. Cause I've got dear friends that would really probably, I would love to put at the top of the list, but just from ethics, I can't cause really financially I can't treat them all. You know, we rely entirely on donations to do this as a charity. So it's like, you know, when the, when the cost of treatment is so high, it's just, impossible to treat veterans for all the service relations so service related injuries and the military veterans are usually you know got comorbid issues like compounded so it's it's a far greater and more extensive treatment protocol than your average civilian who just who, who who wants to live longer or has you know some physical issues um so what we do is we we've got like a bit of a short list, some guys that are, you know, proper fucked up and not to downplay anyone else's injuries, but there are some guys that are like, I don't know them personally and they will move the needle of like for correlating data to go. Okay. So if we move the, if we move the needle with enough correlated data, show the success and such a great success, over a period of time, essentially we can correlate that data and put that towards the the, the general public and the serving militaries um, and the veterans affairs communities across those five nations to really indisputably apply pressure on the government to introduce this ASAP. I'm not interested in a, in, in a 10, 15 year journey of this. I'm interested in this being available within if I had it my way, if I had the money to do this, because I fucking set every single thing up and I can't fund it myself, if I had the money to do this, I'd try to do it within fucking two years. 
I try to force this down the throats of every fucking government official and publicly and apply so much goddamn pressure that it'd 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 be available. It'd, it'd be it'd be so goddamn available to each each veteran and each serving military member, hopefully as well, that this has become standard practice procedure. And it's also worth noting that even in that every year, the R&D development of this as a technology is ridiculous and impressive. Like it's, it's, it's actually almost criminal at this point that this is even in the public hands, let alone we're just talking about it for the military. But uh, essentially my role is to, to, to raise money and whether it be micro donations, whether it be the, the rich, which are, to be honest, are like herding fucking cats and they drive me insane to pursue them. Um, so it, it, it comes on me to ask the, the average man to donate a dollar or $2, whatever the hell they can. But it, like, you know, the many hands make light work and the faster I can get this job done. Um, and that's it. I, I'm, there's, there's no, I don't have a scope for a long-term charitable plan. It is get regenerative medicines accessible as fast as possible into the hands of the veteran community. And then that's it. Then I bow out. I basically want to save like 10 years of suffering or more. It's unnecessary. It's ridiculous. And uh, I kind of find myself in a situation where it's the duty has kind of fallen upon me um, to to at least begin this mission and spread the word um, and get it out there. So that's, yeah, that's essentially where I, where I found myself. So now it won't be just, just operators. It will be impartial across the, the serving military, right? However, I can move the needle best um, to correlate data, success data, I will. Yeah. And you know, one of the things that, people talk about at least in the states like quite a bit it's like the the veteran suicide uh rate or percentage right and I, I you know i feel like if you know when guys are experiencing some of these issues uh and it, it's not even not even just special operations it could be you know first responders police officers firefighters emt um when they're experiencing some of these issues and and there's a you know there's there's you know physical damage um having access to to this type of i mean medicine in uh, in many ways would i feel like would would cut down the amount of suicides i feel um oh. and you know a guy that i i've had on the podcast um uh, twice, no, it was two or three times. He was a a, a Navy, uh, U.S. Navy SARC, so that that stands for Special uh, Amphibious Reconnaissance Corpsman. So it's a special operations medic, essentially. Um, uh, and and he worked primarily with the Marine Corps, like the Force Reconnaissance Battalions and the Marine Raiders, like you know, Marine Special Operations, essentially. And he had a couple, you know, deployments to Afghanistan, and um, and most of the medics, I would say, are pretty, you know, intelligent people, uh, especially the special operations medics. Cause there's what they can do is just, uh, you know, they have like a wide range of skill sets uh, on a medical standpoint. So he, you know, he's a really smart guy, and um, you know, he he'd been to combat a couple times, and uh, I had him on, and and he was able to 
like sort of you know educate me on these things and and talk about like the brain damage and the over pressurization and and all that and and he was a guy who was um you know always talking about like you know don't kill yourself reach out you know there's there's options you know many things you can do right and then uh last summer he 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 took his own life and um it was such a shock because of he was an he was a guy that was like uh you know there are some things available you can do that will help you um so i just feel like you know as you're talking about it like you know connecting you know these treatments like directly to to folks who need it you know on a you know, you know, on like a systematic way, like this is part of the system. Like if you're going through these things, we have these these treatments, uh, you know, that that will really fix you. Like I, I feel like that would save so many people and, and so many guys I, I've known that have taken their own lives, um, you know, post-military. Um, like I, I just when, when you say it, like I just think like, man, like I wish like these guys had access to the stuff. Uh, and, and maybe they would still be here, you know? Oh God. It's, it's so, it's so soul crushing. Cause I went through the mental health circus and then I went through the physical health circus as well. Right. So I, I, and both were trying to kill me. And honestly, this, the, there was a point there where I'm like, I can't even give a fuck about the mental health at this point because the physical was so, was trying to kill me. And the misery of living that existence at that time was fucking unbearable. And quite frankly, I have in my journal, like I wasn't going to take my own life, but damn well at that time, I wish I didn't exist. And I'd written that on many days Yeah. or I regretted existing. I was in such a state of suffering. Um, and that there wasn't mental health. That was pure fucking misery from the circumstances. And I, I see that in guys. I actually think it's like there's there's several different there's several different prongs here that I could talk about on this. Uh, the, the first thing that I wanted I would, would mention is one thing that I talk about with this is like I think it's bullshit that we measure failure and success quantified by the number of guys that take their own lives. Because um, I think there's so much room between injured or catastrophically injured or comprehensively injured or whatever we would call it and suicide. And there's so many fucking points to treat that along the way that like, imagine the dad who can't pick up his child because he's too, he's so fucked up, right? That could be regenerative medicine could, could, could fix that. Um, and the suffering just in that alone, all the way to the finish line that someone's suffering so much that they can't, um, they don't want to live anymore. Right. And, and, and essentially it's just varying degrees of quality of life, you know, like, and I think that who the, you know, some reason just before suicide or at the line of suicide is where we, 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 we want to measure a statistic or, or truly care about it. I think it's pretty bullshit. I think that the loss of quality of life should be treated on every fucking level. And I think that's where, the regenerative medicine comes in, right? Like at all fucking levels, like a father to be able to pick up his kid, a man to be able to walk properly again, to be able to exercise again, to, you know, to be able to go for a fucking walk again, to be able to have healthy relations with his, with his, 
with his wife because it, it's not to say that's not the cause of some significant suffering, right, like marital despair, um, all the way to someone who's just like, you know, there's so much inflammation in their brain that they just can't even orientate their lives anymore without getting this furious, anger, hopeless, you know, depressive, um, can't sleep anymore, so their accumulative fatigue is so fucking great. They just want to take their life. They don't want to fucking exist anymore because existing is – they're basically giving up hope and then it kind of leads to hope, right? Like I got, I got two things that I think is the, the center of gravity for, for a veteran. And I've actually changed that to three for the healing journey, right? It's the ayahuasca, the ayahuasca stuff I think is, is truly remarkable. Right. And you know, there's different options available. I think Australia has legalized MDMA and psilocybin treatments. So it's coming to America too, because your, your president even talked about that. And, so there's clinical ways to do these indigenous medicines per se. I mean, MDMA is not, um, but it, it does the same sort of chemical reaction of like a natural indigenous medicine. I think like peyote or something like it's like heart opening. So it allows you to get connected with, with, with that side of yourself um, to really feel and process some shit inside of you and find some, some beauty in your life. And then that kind of works on a mental and spiritual level, right? Um, and then there's there's the regenerative medicine, which kind of works on the physical and also kind of indirectly on the mental level, right? And that's from just from lack of suffering, but that's also through removing a whole bunch of the traumas, uh, to physical traumas and stuff to the brain, the damage that was done. Um, but then there's a third, right? The biggest thing that I find that happens to veterans is when they – when the day that they they get too many injuries and they can no longer do their job they essentially lose their identity and their mission that self-actualization and that you know that maslow's hierarchy of needs and they fall to the fucking bottom and then because the mission was given to them they've never really been taught how to orientate themselves on a mission bigger than themselves in their life and if they find it again or stumble upon it again god bless them but it's really hard to fall on that and stumble on that identity and mission again when you're in the fucking dumps because your body and your mind is a circus. So I think getting those things healed is a start. But like I said before, where the ship's in the harbor and you, God bless, like if you've got the holes and everything um, out of your vessel and your vessel is back to fighting condition and refit and able to sail again, that is great, but if you've got no destination or, or the, the ship wasn't designed to sit in the, in the harbor. So that's also a struggling point, I think, for veterans is reorientation of themselves and for general society, right? And that's so important to men, like so fucking important for men because like women could, could have children um, or the feminine, right? Say the feminine could have children and the, the, the masculine really needs that mission that's bigger than themselves. Um, women could have children, they could have relationships, whatever, and get a whole bunch of fulfillment out of that. And the men can, but that necessity for something bigger than themselves is always weighing over them. And the majority of the military is that masculine, right? Almost entirely masculine energy. So I, I and I didn't realize this until recently when I found myself working in a, in a men's community, right? Um, and just, just a civilian friend of mine had put himself through the 
fucking locker of a lifetime and he'd had autoimmune as well and and he'd found a whole bunch of um societal lies and things that he just worked out through going through this process of putting himself through hell and just like a really difficult journey to see what it was like on the other side of that journey and everything that we're promised and now i've been working with that in in a, in a way to help orientate men onto a new mission and a new path through sort of almost finding that authentic center of gravity themselves and conquering fears something like that is i actually i think is absolutely necessary now because once you heal or get on the general path of healing you the soul needs a something bigger than itself to orientate itself to and i think that's one thing that we know is an issue but is so fucking overshadowed by the fact that you know all right i've i've lost my identity and i've lost my career today but i'm also trying not to kill myself or die so that kind of takes priority in my mind well it doesn't seem like the mind or the soul forgets that and if those two things forget it there's not much use to the body existing anymore is there it's going to make it pretty difficult for dudes to orientate themselves towards a future if there isn't one um so i think communities like that um environments like that and general programs or, or however the hell you formulate it usually by doing things that scare you getting out of your comfort zone is really important to the, the veteran as well I, i really do think those three things because there can't just be this journey of healing right there has to be this journey of mission orientation of finding something that is worth living for and that's bigger than you and that makes you get up every day and that you take pride in yourself and you find that passion and i think that element there is is very overlooked and almost i guess when you're just trying to stop guys from taking their own lives and immense suffering there's a reason it's the last thing but there's never going to be this perfect state of healing and i don't and i actually think this is part of that perfect state of healing if there ever was one um is that reorientation to finding that 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 purpose bigger than you yeah i mean there's fantastic points and um you know earlier we kind of spoke about like uh you know finding like or or having found like these cultures that have been around for a long time and and um you know they they're sort of very rooted in tradition um but in a in a healthy way right and, and i mean of course like you know all over the world like there can be things that are healthy about certain ideas and then unhealthy at the same time like every everywhere has their problems right um yeah but uh you know m- one of my friends he was a uh, army special forces guy US army for a long time and um you know ton of combat and and training and deploying and all that and he went through he had some issues like as he was at the, at the tail end of his career um and and he you know he went to, he had different treatments done and and but you know like you said like after you get like the treatment done and you, and you're kind of like physically okay then like what's the next step and um yeah. and he kind of studied like ancient philosophy like but you know being a warrior he focused on the warrior aspect so like 
I mean, there's so many ancient warrior cultures that have a lot of wisdom. Uh, you know, like Greek, the Greeks, for example, right? Or, or the Japanese, or I mean, uh, you know, there's warrior cultures in Central South America. I mean, it's all over the world. But uh, in particular, he kind of focused on the Japanese uh, side of it. And, um, you know, there's a ton of literature from, from like the samurai era, uh, right, were these guys who who were warriors and fought in in so many battles and but they there's like a culture in Japan um, it's it's a term it's it's called ikigai and it's like about having purpose in life and staying motivated and there's sort of different uh, avenues of it uh, uh, you know social non-social uh, anti-social right and um, it's basically like if anyone in the audience just wants to learn about it, it's really fascinating. And 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 some of this is is why I like Japan is always one of my favorite uh, favorite cultures. Um, and obviously, you know, they're not perfect; they have their own problems over there. But uh, just the, the some of the the societal sort of traditions there, I feel, are, are really well thought out and and can be positive. And, and the ikigai is one of them. Um, and so it's just like the, this, it, you can go down the rabbit hole, there's a, a whole bunch of stuff about it, but um, for anyone interested, it's, it's, the spelling is I-K-I-G-A-I, and just sort of look into it. And um, it's like a, a well thought out concept of uh, having fulfillment and being motivated and, and what that means. Um, and so the, the Japanese have a ton of things like that where it's just, um, like on a societal level, they thought about this, and there's there's theories and and um, you know de- details about how you can think about some of these things. And there's also another concept. Uh, I'm I'm forgetting the name, but it's about like having pride in everything you do, right? So like, if you're a waiter at a restaurant, or if, if or if you're like cleaning the streets, or if you're a firefighter, like the idea is to like to be proud and, and to work hard and, and try and be the best at what you're doing. And, uh, and through that, that mental process of, of trying, even if it's like, you know, it's maybe it's not like what your dreams are or something like, but just having like, you know, striving for perfection, uh, there's fulfillment in that. Um, and I guess, um, you know, that's part of what you guys experience. Like when you're, constantly training like you're trying you're trying your hardest to reach the highest levels right so you're, you're trying to perfect your craft over and over and over and um, yeah and it doesn't have to be special operations it could, it could be like writing it could be you know whatever like whatever your profession is you know if you if you have that there's, there's a positive thing about that we um we we in that man's community i was talking about it's called the the path um to orientate men on their path, right? And we talk about those two things. The second one is, um, it's not exactly something that we taught directly and teach directly in our program, but it comes up and it's, the word I use for it is elite, right? And it doesn't matter what you do, that you will be the very best that you can be at whatever you do. It has nothing to do with being better than the next person or in a hierarchy, it is that whatever you touch, you do your very best at, you will be elite at it. And that's the term. It's like doing whatever job or role or task it is to the very best of your ability. And the Japanese nailed that with pride. 
And the other thing that we do teach is um, is yeah, we, we, we touch on in the program, we touch on Ikigai, right? And Ikigai is super, super powerful, but it's a formula for long life. It's not 100% in any capacity or not even designed necessarily for any capacity to get, get you on your um, – to get you to that self-actualization phase, right? And it's really hard because it's like people have got this big talk about purpose and they're trying to find their purpose and whatnot. And I use that word because it's it's what people are best aligned with. But we almost teach that like maybe purpose isn't exactly what you're looking for and it could be bullshit. Maybe what leads you to your ultimate fulfillment and destination is doing those things that scare you. And when we remove that clutter, um, and don't get me wrong, by the way, you guys are great fucking formula for, for long life and that quality of life on this journey. We teach that for sure. But doing the things that, that scare you, for some reason, if you do the low-level ones and then you do the medium-level ones, you have hard conversations with your family and you, you, you tackle things that are really quite confronting in your in your life, you kind of remove all this clutter of shit that's been holding you back and you start speaking your truth, right? And your truth is like integrity and integrity is when your words, your actions and your thoughts are all aligned. And when you speak out what you've, you want to think regardless of the consequences, when you say, when you feel, when you think, when you act is exactly who you authentically are. For some reason, getting that shit out of the way gets you on this path to your destination and your life fucking happiness and fulfillment and and your objectives become pretty damn pretty damn clear and turns out what they really were was just you discovering who you really are standing up for whoever the really you really are and uh and tackling those things that you've been too afraid to tackle your entire life because you're worried about societal judgment or you're worried about um failing or or whatever bullshit you've convinced of yourself. Um, and that there generally leads you into the direction of a really beautiful fucking path journey to, you know, the rest of your life and that self-actualization. Because the purpose is, um, it is really, it's, it's almost dynamic, right? You know, like trying to come up with a person's, purpose to exist it's almost dynamic and then should that fall through for something outside of your ability then outside of you know like your control then you know like if you as a man if you make your purpose your 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 wife she dies or she leaves you and there's no coming back it's like you're gonna fucking suffer measurably but if your aim is to be on the path the best version of yourself diligently and tackling your fears and being authentic every fucking day no one, no matter how injured you are, circumstances in life can fucking can make that waiver. And that that there is like that there is like really gets you on the path to to a, a, a quite a beautiful future that you truly want. Um, yeah, that might have been a long-winded way to talk about those two things, but Ikigai, I I, I really I really do love, and I studied the book um, Principles, and that's not just Japan. That was actually that was Greece as well. They went to several different communities yeah. to work out why that functioned so well. Um, and it, it is a very good center of, of gravity for life. You can, it, it really makes, if you can tick all those boxes, you're in a pretty damn good fucking start. Um, it's as challenging as it might be. 
Yeah, no, I mean, that was that was pretty powerful words, man. Um, be, because I feel like that, you know, like just different examples you use, like, like that can apply to so many people. Um, and and there is something sort of powerful about discipline and, and um, you know, like, like working towards something and uh, and kind of, you know, being as squared away as you can be, right? Um, like that, that, like the, the repetition of discipline has like such a, a positive effect on people and um, no, that's good stuff. Like what you just it's, said is, is really powerful. It's so powerful that, that one of the biggest things that, that is missing when, when you leave the military and you lose that identity of who you are um, and that mission and that collective mission, you lose community, you, you know, as well. So what we give to guys is we give them community again and accountability to the community to show up every day for each other and to have a discussion there about the shit they can't talk to anyone else about or outside of that forum or whatever, right? They have a, they have a place to share their wins and their losses, complete open kimono, um, like fucking for everyone in there to, to basically see. And they, they have that confidence in it. And it's like that even there is an overcoming a, a fear. Um, the community is just, is so fucking powerful. We don't give it enough credit when we're in the military. And when you leave to have that community, I haven't had that community again since I left the unit until now. And I'd, I, and I'd like to say that it's like it works for most people, but accidentally every single guy that we keep putting through these programs has success. We've, we've had a hundred percent strike rate and it might only be like, you know, 35, 40 people, but it's, it, it's really fucking working to reorientate guys. Um, and it's, it's, it's beautiful work that I've accidentally and serendipitously found myself in. Um, and to be honest, even for me, from my own personal level, to have that community there, to support of each other and daily accountability. Like we have daily, daily check-in where everyone's got to be like, you know, fucking, did you do your disciplines today? Are you doing what you said you would do? And you committed to this group that you would fucking do, you know, no one's going to force you to turn up. But God is powerful when you, you know, everyone else is kind of, if you're having down days, you know, they, they, they lift you up. They bring you to get your shit done and have your shit in order because consistency works, community works. I think uh, it's another thing of this modern era, right? We've, we've, we've fucking killed that community. Not, everyone doesn't have to have the same orientated goal, but that modern era with the media, the divisiveness, not talking to your neighbors, looking at your phone at dinner, you know, avoidance of new people, all this shit is just fucking crushed community. And those indigenous cultures to even circle back there, they never for one fucking moment let go of that community. Because if there's a war party or you're injured in a hunt or whatever, who else is going to fucking help feed your family while you're down and out? You know? Yeah. And, you know, the, the community part of it is, is so interesting. Um, so I, I think there was a study um, specifically about suicide. And I think what the study found was that um, suicide exists or suicide is more prevalent in wealthier countries. Um, mm. And uh, one of the, I think one of the, 
the aspects of what they found was that in some of these poorer countries, the there's a a a, a, uh, a greater sense of community, uh, and people are sort of together, and like it's not like the uh, happiness isn't predicated on like money or financial success, right? Like obviously you need some kind of money to have food and a place to live and stuff like that, right? But um, the emphasis is, is, there's such an emphasis on like the togetherness of it. And like, um, like where I come from in New York, like I mentioned, there's a, uh, it's a largely Hispanic community. Um, so a lot of people from the Dominican Republic, Puerto Rico, uh, like there's some Mexico and, and others in Central and South America. And one of the things that's very prevalent um, is like the, the, the sort of community aspect. Like uh, it's, it's not the suburbs, so it's not like people can just like, you know, meet up and hang out on someone's lawn or something like that or, or hang out on the front porch. But what people do is they hang out like, in front of buildings, you know, on the corner and not in a negative way. Like, I mean, like people have beach chairs and, and people are just hanging out and and enjoying like, you know, just being present and alive and living. And and um, and I, I know you, you obviously you've had experiences with uh, some of these sort of like uh, Spanish speaking cultures where it's just like um, the culture itself uh people are like are very passionate um they're very vocal about like you know positive things like love and all these kind of things and it's it's part of the culture and even though like i said some of these areas may not be as wealthy as other places people aren't doing things like as often as like suicide and i think that 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 community aspect of it the the traditional sort of uh, facets of of that, like the the traditional role of men and women, like the the women sort of like you know take care of people, they take care of the family, they you know. Um, I, I think all of that has a positive effect on on the mental health, the overall mental health. You know, even though of course, like like everywhere has their own problems and. And poverty creates its own problems, um, but the the people I, I feel like some of these things are, are, are such a positive thing, and and um, you know I, I, with the modern the modern sort of like political you know like like you know we're so divisive, we're so divided. Uh, the, the phones we're always on the phones. Like there, there's so many things that that come with. The, the sort of modernization of, of culture and that we really haven't figured out yet. Like, like you know, how, how long should we put our phones down each day, right? Like, how much should we not be listening to music? Like, you know, you can have headphones in your ear all day listening to something. How much is too much? Is there an overload of information that you're constantly uh, hitting yourself with? And, and all these, you know, not sleeping enough, right? All these things eating bad not exercising all these things just sort of compound and and um just have a negative effect on people and i i think i mean of course people are talking about it now but um 
we really need to sit back and reflect as a society on, on, on some of these things uh, in order to just help people move forward. Um, so, okay, so one of the, one of the um, you mentioned before with uh, your organization, uh, Warrior Refit, is that you guys rely on donations. Um, if people want to donate, where can they do that? So they can go to warriorrefit.com. But uh, I'll, I'll give you the link again, so you can you can pass it to them. Um, I've essentially, with all the all the drive, um, as that I learned from the SAS, basically got the carriage ready, and just been driving into the future with my own money. And there is definitely limitations on that. Um, and basically, I need the horse. And the horse is, and, and, and it basically I just implore a donation of whatever size, whether it's a dollar, two dollars more, I, I don't care. Many hands make light work and are greatly appreciated for us to get this horse in front of the cart and drag this into the future. I'm, I've, uh, I literally have aligned absolutely fucking everything and moved heaven and earth to make this happen. Um, but it does take many hands. So the website there, there's a very easy donation function that'll take like 30 seconds. I uh, please donate. I can, and I, this is this is one thing that I can just fucking remove forever, and not like it is self-evident if you've listened to the last podcast, this one, both that this doesn't just like move the needle on on helping vets, but it, it moves the needle significantly on suffering for past generations of veterans and futures that is almost, it, it actually is immeasurable. It is completely fucking immeasurable to, to do that. So I'm, I'm asking you to help me to do that. I'm asking everyone to, to help me, no matter what you can afford. What you will not miss from your bank account is greatly appreciated. And if that's 50 cents, God bless. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, you know, like the, and like, I, I don't remember if I, I think I said this off air last time, like after we finished, but like w when you were speaking about just, just the treatments and stuff, there was so much things I was thinking about. Um, and, and that's why I really wanted to do a second podcast, because uh, I felt like there was just so much more to talk about. Um, and I mean, like, I, I, I highly en encourage the audience, like like uh, Nick said, like whatever you can contribute that that won't you know you won't miss or it won't really uh, impact you negatively. Like just do it because uh, you know all of these all of these different facets of of moving forward, you know, physically healing, moving forward, finding purpose. Um, figuring yourself out and and you know having the discipline all these things are so important and you know whatever you can give will will help to expand that that program uh that's just really all-encompassing and um you know and, and and like i said i just hope people listen to this and and can understand like how important what you're doing is and um again yeah i just i encourage people to to um to contribute what they can and um nick again thank you for doing this um I, th I think we podcasted in total for like four hours um with the first one and this one so um 
you know, I, I appreciate your time. Um, you know, I know you're trying to, like, like I guess like a lot of us just find that work-life balance. Um, so I, I do appreciate you uh, doing this on, on a weekend. Um, and yeah, man, I, you know, I, I think that we can potentially do some more in the future as well. Awesome. Um, John, it's been, a, it's been a pleasure, man. I really enjoyed this one. Um, just to be able to have that conversation um, with you, it was, you know, really, really something. I, um, the, the, only, the only real media that I do track these days seems to be podcasts, just because it allows an actual proper forum for a conversation. And yeah. in fact, I'm noticing that I generally, outside of that men's community, I have more true conversations on here for long periods of time that I, I have with a family member or dear friend or anyone else. It's, it's, yeah. it's actually become a really um, great indirect result of media in our society. Like it's, it's actually, it's actually fucking excellent. So thank you. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to come on here. Um, what I might do is like, you know, if it, uh, people can find me online on Instagram, I'm trying to keep it simple because I think LinkedIn's a bit of a circle jerk. Um, just a bit of a wank fest as we would say in Australia. <laughs> so it's like they can, they can go there and if, if they ever, you know, think of it later and go, Oh, you know, I should maybe donate or whatever. They can go there and find information on my Instagram. That'll be fine. Okay. And I'll, I'll again, you now tag you and, and put this in the, the uh, episode description, but for people who are just listening and not going to be looking at it, what's your Instagram? And I see lone wolf. So N I C L O N E W O L F. Okay, fantastic.